Thank you, Peter. Let's continue our worship in opening the Scriptures and following along as I read in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we'll commence at verse 9, and we'll go through to the end of the, of the chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 9. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. Verse 11. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle, and they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Verse 17, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the labourer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Verse 21, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, But use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. And may God add a blessing uh, to his word this morning. a very difficult passage for me to preach on and uh, for us to sort of relate to, but we will endeavour by God's grace to see what the Apostle Paul was on about in writing such a letter or part of this letter to Timothy. In my last message, we looked at the first eight verses of this chapter and we saw that there needed to be different strokes for different folks needed in the church as we interact with one another according to a person's age and gender. We also discovered that the respect and honour that should be evident in family circles at home is a model that the Lord uses here through the Spirit of God in how we are to treat and approach different family church members. Good lesson in that. But not only did we see how there were different ages and genders in the church and how they needed to be approached and respected differently, but we also saw that there were different people in different circumstances. And one circumstance that was apparent in this historic church at Ephesus was the number of widows that were among them. Evidently, from what I've found out, same today, women, generally speaking, live longer than men. And uh, the ladies have got more stamina or whatever it is, but they live older, and hence you've got widows 
in the church and even in society. But we also saw that there were some who were supported or to be supported, widows in the church, that needed and, and, and were uh, told that they need to be supported by family members. A family's first priority is towards its own. And um, we also saw that others had no support, in other words, no family, and they were destitute widows indeed. That's what they were described for. And they referred to that as in verse 3 and verse 5 and in our reading today in verse 16, widows indeed. And so the issue of care of these widows became a problem uh, along with another number of problems that Paul addresses in this letter and we have been uh, looking at some of them as we've been going through. And so these inspired instructions that were given to Timothy so that he could begin to put things in order in the church, not only according to his own understanding or Paul's own human understanding, but because Paul spoke and wrote this letter under the the authority and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Timothy was to put things now in order in the church with divine authority through this letter. But for that to happen, it was Timothy's responsibility also to pass what he had been told by Paul onto the saints in the church. For these were inspired instructions, just as they are inspired instructions to us today. But also Timothy, as the leader, the pastor, the elder of that church, he was to be a living example of what Paul instructed. He wasn't to act and be anything that would cause the assembly or any in the assembly to despise his youth because, generally speaking, he was a young man. And so he needed to earn this credibility and respect and he could do that and would do that by following Paul's instruction. In other words, his own conduct and the way he approached people and spoke to people and dealt with people in the assembly was to be in sync with these inspired words given to him by the apostle. And might I say, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Any teacher of God's word needs to be a living example of the truth that he teaches. Otherwise, it's just hypocrisy. So although Timothy was the original receiver of this letter of divine instruction, you see, folks, it wasn't only for him. He was expected to heed it, obey it, and then pass it on to the saints in the assembly for them to heed and obey also. And so that's what I'm doing today. Like Timothy, passing this instruction on for all of us as an assembly to heed and obey for God's glory. As I mentioned before, there were numbers of issues in this church, just like there are issues in every church. Nothing changes. There were a number of issues, but I have, what I've done, I've chosen, there are three issues in this, well, into the next section in chapter 6, but I've chosen two because I want to keep the other issue uh, we see in the first two verses of chapter 6. I want to keep that, God willing, next week because I believe it is such a relevant topic that every one of us, have to do with. But I've chosen two, and the first one is in verses 9 to 16. That is the issue of needy widows serving in the church. And the second one is we see the issue of appointing of eldership in the assembly or or restoring a godly eldership in the assembly. And then the third one, which we'll look at next week, God willing, we see how employees that respond to their employers. So we're looking at how different believers are to interact with one another and the ongoing health of the church for God's glory. That's what we're looking at today. And I want to bring that to our first point, and I've called it supported or not supported, to be Christian is to serve. We see this in verses 9 to 16. And we all understand that the problems of Timothy's day, as we talked about last week, in regards to needy people, and in this case, widows, will not necessarily be the same today. 
as I suggested last week, because of our welfare system, because of our affluent culture, uh, widows are mostly taken care of extremely well. That'd be right, Sharon, and some widows in front of us. Compared to Timothy's day. And might I say, I would not preach the same message and say what I'm saying in places like perhaps Ethiopia or parts of India or other Asian countries where they don't have the support and affluence and welfare benefits that we have. And so this is applicable for us today. I'm trying to make it applicable for us today. And so because of this, I want you to see an important principle in this section. Rather than be woodenly focused on the text itself and its historical issue. This means that the need and support of widows, as we have here, can be applied as a a kind of a guiding principle in responding to needy saints. And we do have them from time to time. We have them. So although we have looked at the Ephesus problem of widows and those described as widows indeed, we do see a subject change in verses 9 to 16. There is a subject change, but it's still dealing with widows. There is a difference of opinion in this section as to what it's all about. And um, I'm not going to be absolutely dogmatic, but I will give you what I believe it is on about. And the confusion is over verse 9. If you look at your text, you'll say, you'll see there a widow is to be put on the list. Now, what on earth is that on a list? It does seem that there were a unique group of widow ladies who qualified to be put on the list and also some other widows who were not qualified to be put on the list. That's pretty upfront and straightforward. It does seem to be that. Read that. To some, understanding the list is to is for widows indeed, as we have mentioned in verse 3 and 5, that is, destitute widows are to be put on this list so that the church can financially care and support them. This means that the other widows who have family, like we talked about last week, etc., to care for them, as we have in verse 4, cannot be put on the list and therefore will not be a financial burden to the church. This is one way of understanding that, but I don't really agree that that's what it is about. But this view sees this as a protection for the church so that the church won't be overly and unfairly financially burdened with numerous widows' handouts. But this view, as I said, has a major problem. It has a major problem, I believe. And that the subject of support of widows, care and financial support of widows, it finishes at verse 8. This is where all the widows are to be honoured, to be taken care of by family of church. We see that in verse 3 and verse 4 and verse... And and again, it's like a, a summary statement. We see it mentioned widows indeed in verse 16. And so this is finished, the support of widows finishes in verse 8. There is no age restriction in these first eight verses or other qualifications like we have in verses 9 to 16. There's nothing like that in those first eight verses. So I suggest that from verse 9 onwards, this widow's list is not about who gets a financial handout from the church and who does not. It's not about that. I believe it is a formal list that is all to do with widows serving in the church. This list is all about a special group of eligible widows serving in the ministry of the church. Some widows were eligible owing to age and experience. Others were not. This is verified with a whole list of qualifications that we read through. Actually, similar, similar kind of qualifications to that of elders and deacons back in chapter 3 of this letter. So all those, these ladies were not recognized officers. They don't want to call deacons or deaconesses. 
we see that Paul here applies the high standard for this unique group of ladies like he does for any who would serve in the church. By the way, there was such an order of widows, such an order of widows in the early church, and this is verified by extra-biblical history by men like Tertullian and Polycarp. They wrote of the special order of widows within the church who served the church. And so it's kind of even in church history, early early church history in the first three centuries, it wasn't unknown of. But a widow on the serving list was a special lady in the church without a doubt. She was first of all a widow indeed. And then we see the first qualification, she was 60 years plus. She had no means of supporting herself, no family, no pension, nothing. She was a widow indeed. But this listed widow indeed also has something else. She has a great track record in the church. She was a woman who, had, who was known by the church to perform spiritual and charitable functions for the church. You see that? You don't note that? In other words, she assisted deacons and the elders in the ministry of the church. She was over 60 years old, and what she does is she pledges herself to serve and give herself in whatever way she can to serve in the church for the rest of her life. She will be an intercessor for the church. She will pray. She will counsel younger women in the faith. She will visit the sick. She will, she will serve in all these ways. She was qualified to be on this historic list that Paul writes of here. And how was she qualified? She was qualified, first of all, by her age and stage in life and by her spiritual input that she has and had in the assembly. But here we come to this challenging principle that I want you to take note of. Here is this woman, or this group of women, who had no means of supporting themselves or herself, and we'll get it down to the singular, and she's put on a list, and she is now being supported by the church. And that support obviously would involve financial support as well. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. She is a person also who has something to give back to the church. You see that? In other words, folks, she's not simply the recipient of a welfare benefit from the church. In receiving support of the church in her time of need, what does she do? What does she do? She gives back to the church. She pledges herself wholeheartedly to serve it. And so in this passage, what Paul establishes here is this principle. That the Christian life is never merely about receiving or taking or getting, but it always entails giving back that which we have received. That's the principle I want you to consider and think about from this passage this morning. Being a Christian always involves serving. Some of us forget that or give it the flick. We can't do that. Being a Christian always involves serving. So here's the question for each one of us. Are we giving back what we have received in Jesus Christ? Are we serving in the church? Secondly, there's another principle or important principle in this section that I wish to bring to your attention. What Paul does here is he gives some strict warnings about younger widows on, on the eligible or regarding the eligible for ministry list. You see that? We see this in uh, verse 11 onwards. Now, as we look at those verses, we can say, well, yeah, that's obvious. Um, the probabilities of her, this younger woman wanting to, to get married uh, is very real and, and, and very 
natural. Um, it's perfectly natural for her perhaps to be swept off her feet by some man and to fall in love again and uh, etc. etc. And, and, and marry. After all, she's still young and so much of life is still ahead of her, right? It's a very normal and natural for romance and love to happen all over again. It can happen, especially to young widows versus older widows. I'm not saying you ladies will never ever marry again. (laughs) But the desire of would probably wane somewhat 60 plus. And so Paul again here gives some very practical common sense wisdom. He says, and I will sort of put it in contemporary terms, he says, younger, woman, younger widows, don't make this lifelong pledge to the church. Instead, consider remarriage and having a family. Don't shelve the idea of getting involved in the normal run-of-the-mill life that God has generally designed for younger women. In other words, don't make this extraordinary commitment to the church. You might say, wow, is that Paul talking? Yes, it is. It certainly is. But do you see his wisdom here? He's sending a loud message to Timothy and all the church leaders in Ephesus. And Paul tells us all here today, don't be so taken up with filling ministry slots in the church that you fail to consider the personal circumstances and responsibilities that individual people have in their lives. Don't forget that. Don't push it aside. You must always think about the well-being of those who are ministering or who want to serve. And so Paul says to the younger widows through Timothy, don't do this to yourself. It may well please God for you to have another man in your life, so go ahead and marry, have kids, and live a life that is normally suited for younger women. Otherwise, otherwise, all sorts of temptations may well hound you, of which you may well yield and give in to temptation. He's not saying here when he talks about uh, incurring condemnation and being gossips and busybodies and etc. He's not saying that all younger widows who don't remarry, that's what they're going to do. He's not saying that. But he's saying the temptation of those kind of things to enter will be greater if you're younger than you're older. And so we all must think about the well-being of those who are serving. And so all in all this, what Paul is doing is he's contrasting older widows indeed, those who are 60 plus, who are eligible to be put on the ministry list, and those younger widows who are not eligible to be put on the ministry list. Now, this is not saying that there's no support given to younger widows, not no financial support. Remember this idea of support finished at the verse 8. For instance, if you had a young woman at 35, 40, her husband died or was killed or something and she had three or four children and she had no other family to support, of course the church is to step in and support her. This is what verses 1 to 8 is about. And if she does have a family, it's a family's responsibility to care for her. But we're not talking about support here. We're just talking about eligible for ministry list. But also Paul clarifies how the listed widows will not be there only because they are destitute and old, older, older women. That's not the only case. They'll also be on the list because they have practised hospitality. They've reared children. They've rendered service to the weary and afflicted. They've been devoted to every kind of good work. We see that in verse 10. They've got a track record. So that means it's possibly that some older widows are not eligible either to be on the ministry list. So these older widows here who are on the special list were experienced and spiritually mature and who met these qualifications. What an awesome group of ladies to have in the church. Awesome group of ladies. But look at those qualifications again. Just look at them. Is it just about doing this and doing that? Is it just about the tasks they do? I would say no. It's deeper than that. 
You see, the kind of work they do, look, look what they do. They wash the saints' feet. They show hospitality to strangers. Uh, they assist those in distress, etc. That kind of work takes a special kind of attitude, and I would suggest it oozes with humility, right? It oozes selflessness. These ladies, in other words, are being and have been so Christ-like and show a godliness in character. And that is fleshed out by what and how they do what they do. So they're not only awesome because of what they do in the church, they are awesome because of their servant-like character evidenced in their work. But Paul says, uh, you know, as we think about that, we kind of turn to our day and we think of volunteers and those who put their hand up for ministry, etc. And um, we kind of think, well, okay, what's this person got to offer us? What can they do that will assist us? And so often that's what we tend to do without taking any notice or without paying too much attention on that person's character. And that's sad. That is, that is, I believe, wrong. It's not what's happening here. But Paul says here, look at the character of those who serve in the church because unless they meet the character qualities, don't allow them to minister. Don't put them on the list. Now, that's something to think about, right? That is certainly something to think about. But he also infers here that we're to care for them. You see that? We're to care for them. In other words, don't just let these ladies or any servant in the church serve the church to suit you and to fill the ministry gaps or the, the ministry needs of the church. You know, uh, not long after Alex got home, and he's our pastoral intern here, and forgive me, Alex, if I'm embarrassing you here, but this is what happens. Uh, I, I meet with Alex and still like to meet up with him whenever I can. And early in the, day, early in the stage, it was uh, uh, once a week. We'd meet up and we'd pray and we'd discuss things. We'd read a book through together and, and so forth. Like a disciple-mentor relationship. But he's a busy man. Like any young man should be, I might say. He's busy. He works hard. He works long hours. And on top of this, now Alex has, has a family. And I do really care for Alex and for his age and stage in life. And meeting Alex on occasions and rigidly once a week can really interfere big time with his priority of to where he's at in the ministry right now. And so because of this, my meets with Alex need to take a back step in which they do because of his personal responsibilities and age and stage of life that he's in. Folks, and all those who minister and serve, those who take up the responsibilities of ministry in the church, need to be measured carefully against the where and the why and the character of the person who wants to serve. So here we learn the principles for how we ought to respond in our day toward those in need and, and how we are care for them in different stations of life because we are all at different stations of life. Because when we demonstrate our love and our care, especially the leaders, our love and our care for our people and one another, you know what we do? We manifest a powerful testimony to a watching world. Because if we don't care for one another, that doesn't, that's not a good message. So with that, we'll go on to our second point. We're not talking here of renewing of biblical elsewhere. We see this in verses one, uh, 17 to 25. And this is another problem that needed to put in right in the church of Ephesus. And uh, that was all to do with its eldership, its leadership. As a matter of fact, most of the problems in Ephesus' church of Timothy's day could be traced back to ineffective leadership. And in this section, what Paul does is he instructs Timothy how to restore true biblical leadership. And so this is a message both to 
Timothy, the leader, the pastor, and to pastors and leaders today, and also to congregation or members of local churches. It's not about an elder's qualification here. That has been dealt with back in chapter 3. But here we have something that is to do with how the church views and responds to its leaders or its obligations to them, and also how elders and pastors conduct their own lives. So here Paul gives us three principles that define biblical eldership in the church and how we are to respond to them. The first one is honouring your elders, verse 70 to 18. In my younger days, I was brought up in a church where it was absolutely no-no to pay your pastor or your leading elder. You just didn't do that, you know. Uh, that was just how it was. That's what I grew up in. Anyone who paid someone full-time to serve in the teaching and the preaching of the word was so ecclesiastical that we should come out from among them and not be part of them. That, that was my upbringing, but obviously I've changed over the many, many years. And so these, churches, uh, these two verses here give us the answer to this issue. Should we pay our pastor? And honour those elders who faithfully serve in the church. Should we be doing that? The word elder here, by the way, is not referring to an older person. It's, it's, the word is presbytery. And it means shepherd, pastor, elders of the flock. I just want to pause here because as we approach this, just let me say, in all the time I have served in this church, it's 15 years, never have I lacked your respect and honour expressed in your generous love and financial support. Never. And I can never thank you enough for that. So there is no hint, hint, nudge, nudge, wink, wink here, right? That's not what it's about. You need to be commended, actually, as a church for your generosity in this area. And the word honour here also has the same idea as it does back in verse 3 where it says we're to honour those widows indeed. And so that includes respect or regard and most often it includes and can include financial support. And so what Paul does here is he points out the value of all elders. And then he marks out those elders who spend most of their time laboring and preaching and teaching and ministering to the church. And he says, let them be considered worthy of double honor. You see that? Now, don't get carried away and think that this is, just says you're on double time or a double pay rate. That doesn't, that's not what it means. But it basically means worthy of acknowledgement, greater acknowledgement. In other words, those men of God who are in this position, who teach and preach the word and spend most of their time involved in that, they deserve our esteem, respect and high regard. For this is a high honour. It is a high honour of being called by God to preach his word. And no pastor, no teacher, no elder should take that lightly. And I know none of us here do. And so Paul illustrates this obligation of the church to its leaders by quoting an Old Testament proverb, a very agrarian one, and it's quoted from Deuteronomy 25, and it says, talks about not muzzling your ox while it's working for you. Now, none of us have an ox here, and so we're not familiar with it, but what happened is you had an ox, you know, and you used to put him on this big wheel, and you may have seen pictures of it, and the ox would walk around and walk around in a circle, and he would be driving usually a grinding mechanism where grain was ground and all day he would walk around and round and he would grind the grain uh, for the particular owner and most often he would have a big muzzle bag or on the ground in front of him would be some grain for him to eat when he wanted to nibble now and again and, um, and so this is what it's all about um, and then other words while your ox is working on the threshing floor, any man who stopped his ox from having a nibble now and again or was muzzled so that he couldn't eat 
would be downright cruel and miserly if he did not let his hard-working beast eat some of what he was threshing. It was to the farmer's benefit to have a healthy ox and one that was content, right? And then Paul shifts the metaphor here. He shifts it from animal to man by saying, the laborer is worthy of deserving of, or deserving of rightful wages. That's what he says. So the ministry should be the same way. This is simply what it's saying. The ministry should be the same way. Paul says it again in 1 Corinthians 9.14. The Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Same idea. So are we right in financially honouring our pastor whose main task is teaching and preaching? The text says here, yes, very clearly. And might I say again, I have been more than content with your generosity. And then the second point is protecting your elders. We see this in verses 19 to 21. As we know, as did Paul, elders are not above sin and disrepute. And Satan loves when that happens in the church, by the way. When elders fall, when elders fail, when elders fall, it commits sin. But at the same time, Satan often energizes certain people to falsely accuse elders or pastors of wrongdoings of some sorts. I point the finger and say, hey. And so Paul says to Timothy, don't jump to conclusions when an elder or a pastor is accused. That's what it means by spoken against by someone. In other words, Paul says that what that spoken against means, do not receive an accusation against It means don't even entertain the idea of what you have heard. You may hear it, but just let it go by. Don't entertain the idea. And then he puts an exception clause in because, as I said at the beginning, here on the section, he knows pastors can be guilty. We're ordinary men. He puts this exception clause in which says, unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Folks, it's a serious matter to accuse an elder, or or anyone for that matter, but here it's elders, of wrongdoing. Be it true or be it false. The minister and reputation of elder must not be unnecessarily damaged by accusations that have no grounds and are not verified by two or three witnesses. That's the protocol that God has said. It's not my idea, it's God's idea. This is verified, I might say, in Matthew 18 in regards to anyone who commits sin that needs to be brought to the attention of the assembly. But if there is sin to be found and two or three witnesses bring this to the attention of the other elders... In other words, if an elder is not above reproach, there is a proper way for this to be exposed and dealt with. This is what verse 20 is about. Those who continue in sin, that is, those elders who are not above reproach in some matter, whatever it is, Paul says here, you are not to keep it quiet or deal with it privately like you may do with a sinning member over a similar misdemeanor. For example... If someone found out that I was had up at court because I dodged the tax department. Or say one of you did that. I would probably come and have a talk to you and uh, I would see you're repentant and uh, we would discuss that issue uh, and we'd just counsel the way through it. I would not bring that and the elders would not bring that before the assembly. Now, if I was guilty of it, That's a different story. That's a different story. The elders would talk to me and repent it or not. It needs to be brought to the attention of the assembly and I would like to think that I would have the grace and the humility to step down from my position because of this misdemeanor, this sin, where I had stolen. Okay? That's kind of what it's talking about here. It's not to be kept quiet. An elder's sin is not to be pushed under the carpet. He is to be publicly rebuked, which says here, in the presence of all. That is the whole assembly. There's no room for hush-hush when a pastor sins, folks. No room for that at all. And so for the sake of the 
and of the ongoing purity of the church and the eldership, he is to be rebuked publicly. Why? So that the rest will be fearful of sinning. You see that in our text? Now, this rest here can mean two things. And either way, it's right. When an elder is rebuked for a sin, immediately the other elders are going to think, oh, well, that is serious. And it should shore up a, a self-discipline that I don't want to go down that track. And it will also send the same message out to the congregation, right? So that the rest will, not, will be fearful of sinning. You see, folks, if churches maintained this high standard that God has set, you know what it would do? It would curb so many unqualified men from entering or re-entering the pastorate. It would have a sobering effect on, on many flippant, loose congregations as well. Too often, I've just heard recently of a disgraced pastor being accepted in another church and given the honour and dignity that only a qualified pastor should receive. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't forgive the repentant. This doesn't mean he cannot be forgiven, etc. But it does mean that a disgraced pastor may never, may never be qualified to shepherd the flock or pastor a church again. That's what it means. The consequences for our sin, folks, always. Why? So why is that? It's because God takes seriously the exampleship and actions of those who are his under-shepherds of his people. He takes that seriously. And then Paul, we see, goes to 21 and he gives Timothy a solemn charge in the presence of heavenly witnesses. This really uh, makes me tremble this. He says, this charge is given before God and Christ and chosen angels. In other words, heaven itself sees and hears and knows this charge I'm giving you, Timothy, and every elder pastor of the church right up into this present time and into the future. This charge is given before God and Christ and chosen angels and Timothy without partiality, without any bias toward any person, and even including yourself, you are to hold fast and practice what I have instructed you. That's what the charge is. In other words, practice and teach these things out of the fear of God and Christ and his chosen angels, not out of the fear or preference of men. And so sadly, that's the basis that many churches act. You see, folks, to rebuke sinning elders or pastors is not easy, but you know what? God requires it. I hope it never, ever happens here. But you need to be informed of these things. You need, to, you need to know the standard. You need to know the qualifications here that God has said. Because he wants to maintain the holiness of the church. So the question for us here as readers of, and the church is, are we to be more concerned about our reputation as a church? Or the leaders are to be concerned about more our reputation? In other words, hush, hush, we don't need to say this or whatever. Are we more concerned about that or God's holiness? The answer is clear. We must always stand on God's holiness. Finally, selecting your elders, or not finally, but we see this in verses 22 to 25. You know, one of the greatest pitfalls for any church, and especially its leaders, is to appoint an elder too hastily. The laying on of hands here is in connection with the elders' recognition and then the church's recognition. They, uh, they show their solidarity with the elders and the appointment of a new elder. And so Timothy was instructed not to hurry this matter. Take your time. Now, when it comes to appointing elders, as you know, we do not have apostles today. Or we do not have associates of the apostles today who are appointed elders. But we do have elders. And just like Timothy was, um, was appointed by the elders, we see that in the last chapter, verse 4 and 14, by the presbytery. That's what we follow. Selecting elders is not done by a mere democratic process while all congregations cast their vote and the one who has the most votes wins and so he's an elder. That is not a biblical standard. That is what we call today congregational rule. And we don't stand there. 
This is eldership rule. And so it's responsibility of the elders to put forward to the assembly, we recommend this person be an elder, and it's up for the assembly to acknowledge and recognize because they value and respect their elders. That's how it is to be. And so this matter, first and foremost, is the responsibility of the existing eldership. And the point before us is that if elders do not examine, take the time to prove and investigate the character and the life of a prospective elder, they are treading on dangerous ground. Now, just because some guy comes to our church and he might be a multimillionaire or whatever and he's got great business acumen and he, and he wears a tie and he speaks eloquently, that don't qualify him to be an elder in the church. Matter of fact, in some ways it might disqualify him. It could help, but the qualifications are back in chapter 3 of this chapter and that's what, of this book, and that's what other words. And so in other words, acting too hastily without proper evaluation may well see an unqualified man take leadership. And you know what happens? When the fat hits the fan, when he really shows his true colours, this has happened. You'll know in situations where this has happened. His sins and his shortcomings, you know what's going to happen to them? will be held against those who rushed him in and even on the whole church. This is what it means by share in the responsibility of the sins of others. Timothy was not to risk that possibility by choosing elders, pastors. He must do it wisely. And in doing so, he would keep himself, this is what it means, keep himself free from sin. In other words, he would not wear the mistake if he followed the protocol that God has set in selecting elders. And so according to verse 24 and 25, when a proper evaluation takes place for some, the candidates, their sins will be blatantly obvious. In other words, someone in the church might say, oh, look, I think such and such would be a great elder. Well, we already know that he's dodgy in this area and he doesn't treat his wife very well and, uh, yeah, yeah, he, he loves money or, or, or whatever. His career comes as the first priority in everything. And so we'd have grave question marks about that. And so Timothy wasn't to risk that. And, uh, and so he was, he was to examine. The elders would examine. And... Um, to, to look at these folk. But with some of the elders, some of the prospective elders, their sin is more discreet. After all, a, a prospective elder is not going to put his hand up and say, hey, I'm a dodgy person. I beat up my wife now and again when I get angry, but I, I, I ask for the Lord forgiveness straight after. After all, I'm only human. I'm knocking my kids around too, but I'm being open. He's not going to do that. But so only after evaluation and time of proving before he's even considered, those sort of things can come to the surface and so will disqualify him. And it's the same for those who are good, those who are qualified. In other words, we don't just appoint an elder here uh, for who he is right at the present time. We look back at his track record. Just like most elders and deacons, there are, I believe there are many deacons in this church who are already deacons or deaconesses already because they're doing the work of a deacon and deaconess. And it's the same with an elder. If an elder should be already doing the work of an elder. In other words, he would approve himself in the teaching of the word and his understanding of the scripture and the doctrines of grace and, and those that we hold. He understands those things and he can communicate them in some way. He doesn't necessarily have to be up here, but we have a home group, be one-on-one. He will prove himself blatantly obvious, just like the sins of some are blatantly obvious. But also some are more discreet because you go, do get some prospective elders who work behind the scenes. And these are the ones who obviously, quite most of the time, have a, a greater effect and work in the assembly than others. This is what this means. This is why there must be proper evaluation before an elder is appointed. And so before we leave this section, we will note there's a personal word to Timothy. Some of you are saying, hey, yeah, why did he miss that out? Now, Timothy was a sick man. He wasn't a very healthy guy. He had often ailments. And um, he was delicate and was often sick. And it also may be that Timothy 
because of Paul's instruction about to use a little wine for your stomach's sake, it also could be that Timothy was going all out to keep himself pure, as Paul instructs him in verse 22. So Paul inserts some personal advice here. Timothy, he says, I'm putting this in contemporary terms, Timothy, for goodness sake, do not be so taken up with yourself, personal discipline, including total abstinence from wine, that you put your health at risk. Use a little wine for your stomach's sake because this Mideastern water is real dodgy and drinking it constantly will make you sick. Now, this is no way advocating for leaders to cut loose now and again and forget about their high standards, right? It's no, 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 uh, it's not doing that. Timothy was not to cast aside all self-discipline on occasions and allow the wine that he had to flow freely. That's a sin. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. He says, Use a little wine. He doesn't say guzzle it. This was for his health. This was advocating common sense because... Timothy's health was at risk. So just very briefly in summary, and sorry I've kept you late on this hot, hot day. Being a Christian is never merely a matter of receiving, of taking, of getting. It always involves giving back because we have received so much in Christ. Amen? Always involves giving back. Are you serving and giving to the saints? Number two, Honour your elders, protect your elders, and make sure your elders are qualified according to God's standard. Next week, God willing, we'll be looking at the diligent employee in first two verses. Thank you for that. I think Peter's going to, maybe we just sing a couple of verses of this next song owing to the heat of the day. Or do you want to? I just think we'll cancel the song owing to the heat. A few of you are looking weary, and we won't bother singing this final song. And let me close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do give thanks for your great grace and for your wise instruction. Father, every area of life is covered. Even how we conduct ourselves in the church and approach one another, respect one another, and how things will be done, you give us instruction. We thank you for that, and we've read of some of those instructions today. So help us in this. Help us in our homes and our families, Lord, to respect one another, our mums, our dads, our and uh, at the children, their parents, and vice versa. And so, Father, help us to do that so that we'll honour the Lord. And so, Lord, we take us to our homes in safety, and may this week, even though it's going to be hot temperature-wise, may we keep warm for the Lord and never grow cold. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.